Hear now God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, continuing our study in this epistle of Paul. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him be silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that you may all learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints." Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which are right to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant." Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's give thanks together. Father, I pray that you would guide us by your Spirit through this text today. Father, uh, cause us to submit to your Word and to your wisdom and to your will, so that in all things we might be pleasing to you. Carry me through this teaching time today. By your Spirit, I pray, strengthen me. And help me to articulate these things clearly. Deliver us from all distraction. Deliver us from all error. And may we hear, as it were, your very voice speaking to us today through your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In 1876, to commemorate the centennial anniversary of the American War for Independence, the popular lithography shop of Nathaniel Courier and James Ives reissued a popular print that they had first issued in 1848. This print was titled, Washington's Farewell to the Officers of His Army. And this, of course, they're republishing it 100 years after uh, the the, uh, Declaration of Independence. This artwork depicts the great General Washington standing dead center of the image. His associates, his generals, are assembled around him. His his uh, three-cornered hat sits on a table by his side. Washington is in his dress uniform. His right hand is curled into a fist near his chest, and it rests on his chest. He looks to be making some kind of gesture, but the officers all around him look lost in thought, and it's not clear what exactly is happening in the scene in this image, in this print. But it would make sense if you had seen the original image published 28 years earlier. In the original print of uh, Washington's farewell to the officers of his army by Courier and Ives, on the, on the table is not his three-cornered hat. On the table is a decanter and wine glasses. And uh, he's, he's not making a fist. He's got a wine glass in his hand. Uh, and and not, not strangely putting his fist to his chest, but there's a wine glass uh, in, his, in his hand. 
And it's obvious there then that what is happening is he's delivering this solemn toast to his officers and the expressions on their faces communicate sadness and humility. That image is coherent. That image is intelligible. Uh, George Washington loved to share a bottle of wine after supper at night with whoever was around and with his guests. He would open a bottle of wine after supper and often pair it with a bowl of hickory nuts. That was his uh, post-dinner routine. And the event pictured there is an actual historical event where he gave an address at a tavern. He opened a bottle of wine. He invited his officers to join him in a toast at the end. In, it was his, uh, 1783 at the end of the War for Independence. So the question is, why did Courier and Ives edit their painting in 1876? Why did they have to paint over the, the, the decanter and the wine glasses and put a three-cornered hat there? Why did they uh, deftly paint over the wine glass so it looks like he's just holding his fist to his chest? Why did they do that? Well, if you know anything about the end of the uh, 19th century, you know it was about the time of the growing influence of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. This was the time of the rise of, of the Prohibition Movement and the Anti-Saloon League. That was gaining steam at the time. So if you're going to make any money selling sentimental pictures of, of great American heroes to women, you're going to have to remove any offending strong drink in the picture in order to fit the prevailing cultural climate. You have to paint your own modern morality over history. You have to remove the offense because, of course, we're holier than they were back then. We're better. We're smarter. We've evolved. We know better. Uh, but in the process of doing that, in the process of making this revision, you make the message unintelligible. You, you make the image meaningless in the process. This is the very same thing that liberal theologians and egalitarians and Christian feminists do with history and with the scriptures. We today in our generation absorb our values from our wicked fallen society. We're informed more by our society than we are the Bible. And then we turn to God's holy word, not as um, students of the word, not uh, as subjects of the word. We turn to God's word as critics over the word, and we think it is our prerogative to approach the scriptures with our progressive whiteout, with our reactionary delete key, and we paint over or remove whatever doesn't fit with our narrative of a bland, nice God, with a, with a bloodless cross, with all the rough edges sanded down, with, with uh, pictures of men and women, with all the distinctions flattened out in the scriptures. Because again, we're more moral than the ancients. We know better. We're actually holier than Jesus, or so we think. We know better than these benighted ancients. We're more moral, more holy. We have greater wisdom and clarity. And we don't have patience to learn what the scriptures are actually teaching and to understand what is being said in context and seek understanding. 
Well, we have one of those sentences in Scripture this morning in our, in our text that we want to read and immediately rush to qualify. We want to rush to apologize for and we want to paint over it with this exegetical whiteout before we even let it settle in, before we even understand what is being said or before we understand the context. And this is verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Read that out loud in any public setting and you'll have people pulling their hair out and gnashing at teeth and saying, where are you getting that? That's not in the Bible. That's not, that's not uh, scripture. Um, so, but we got to take a breath, take a breath and listen for just a minute. We know that God created man and uh, male and female. God created mankind in male and female, and both man and woman reflect his divine image. We know also that Jesus valued women. And not only are women at, some of the, at the center of some of the most important teaching and some of the most important events in the life of Jesus, but women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. We know that Paul himself, the apostle, respected women and the way he greeted them and commended them by name, Phoebe, Junia, Priscilla, and others he names. So then if we just take a breath for just a minute, we understand that this is not written to encourage misogyny. This is not written out of a disrespect for women in the church. What does it mean? Well, let's work on that, but let's work on it within the text without without bringing our new human, humanistic morality, without our, without our holy whiteout uh, to try to edit the scriptures. But let's, get, let's set up the context first and we'll, we'll understand what this means. For the, for the last several chapters, Paul has been exhorting the Corinthians to behave with deference and honor toward each other when they gather, when they assemble as a church. He instructs them on their appearance that men are to appear one way and women are to appear another, underscoring and, and highlighting their roles as men and women when praying or prophesying, on how they conduct themselves at the Lord's table and how they exercise their spiritual gifts, and now how men and women operate and participate together in the assembly. I know I just read this, but, but let's, let's walk through this slowly. Again, pick up from verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints." I love to hear people tell their stories of how they came into the Reformed faith and what, what was their point of entry. <coughs> 
how did you become Reformed? For many people, what attracted them to the Reformed faith was the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things, that even including our salvation, this, this exalted and enhanced perspective of God's holiness and our fallenness, that, that we're not negotiators sitting across from God the Father, somehow working out the terms of our salvation, but that we are dead in sins and we need His uh, Holy Spirit to revive us, to even give us the faith, give us the life to respond to Him. And that, that is very, very attractive and uh, very uh, uh, thrilling when you first begin to understand. You know, you read Ephesians 1 for the first time with that perspective, and it's, it's glorious. For other, peoples, uh, for other people, it's not, the, it's not so much the doctrines of grace or the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It's, it's the covenant that's their point of access. The idea that God saves not just individuals, but He saves families and nations and cultures and peoples, that, that God has made promises to us and to our children. That is the point of access. For other, for other people, it's the, it's the helpful, helpful applications of the covenant, the, the consistency of applying all of God's law to all of, God, uh, all of our lives, or, or the principle that, that covenant Christian children need a covenant Christian education. Or, or, or maybe it was apologetics, or maybe it was eschatology, or maybe it was biblical theology. I could go on all day about all the things that I love and cherish in our Reformed heritage, things I love about the Reformed faith. But the one thing that was most attractive to me, and all these other things were very attractive, each in turn, as I came to understand them, but the one thing that was most attractive to me was the order of the Reformed faith and the order of the Reformed churches order in worship, order in local church government, order in broader church government. In the church environment I came from, and I've told you all these stories many times, in the church environment, I even pastored a Baptist church for many years. And the, in the environment I came from, you never knew what you were going to get on a Sunday. Verse 26 is a great description. How is it, brethren, whenever you come together, one of you has a psalm, one of you has a teaching, one of you has a tongue, one has a revelation, one has an interpretation. That's an accurate description. There was very little structure or the way of, of, of thought or preparation in, in, in how we're going to do worship together. Very little order. You could tell that not a lot of time was spent on the sermons. Hymns were picked on the fly. Prayers and announcements and testimonies and prayer requests and special music and these performances were all just thrown in together. The attempt was to be very homey, very casual, you know, kind of very, very low key. And the, the assumption was that's very first century, you know, uh, that was the thought. But the result was utter, utter chaos. Everybody leading, everybody coming to church with their own thing to say, with, with everyone with their own desire to be heard individually, with so many voices and with the premium placed upon spontaneity. It's very difficult for the church to speak with one authoritative voice, one studied voice, one unified voice, with a cacophony of voices all competing for an audience, all desiring to absorb the attention and direct praise toward themselves. In that environment, in that, in that culture, the church remains infantile. She never moves beyond the very basic fundamentals. She's driven toward the sensual and the emotional rather than the kind of understanding Paul exhorts the Corinthians toward and, and the kind of understanding he commends. The, the first time I visited a church, a reformed church with an orderly liturgy uh, with my wife and my infant daughter, 
I wept and I drove home that day from church saying that that's God was there. This is, this is worship. This is what I've been looking for all my life. I, I sounded, I sounded like the guy in uh, you know, verse, uh, you know, what uh, verse uh, 24, 25, the secrets of his heart are revealed falling down on his faith. He will face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That was really my experience when I first encountered order in the church order. Now, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to conduct their meetings with good order and with peace, not confusion. Not with everybody popping up with their own attention-seeking thing, competing with each other for the spotlight. He says, if anybody's going to speak in a tongue, let it be two, at most three. That's, That's how he says it. Take turns, but there must be an interpreter. If there is no interpreter, let him be silent. If you got a tongue, talk to God. You don't have an interpreter, keep it to yourself. If someone has a word of prophecy, Again, let it be two or three. Let the others judge, but don't interrupt. Be silent. Wait your turn. Now, to us, this may still sound a little ragged, like, oh, two or three and two or three of this. That sounds a little, that sounds a little open-ended. And if that leaves things a little too loose, just imagine what it was like before he gave these instructions, before he, before he told him to do this. What does it mean? What is he talking about when he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge? Well, let's remember where we are in history and how this might have worked out. At this point in time, they may have Matthew's gospel. Mark's gospel uh, might be making the rounds at this point. Uh, But outside of that, and Paul's two letters to them, they don't have the completed New Testament. And so they're relying upon the Spirit's gift of prophecy to illumine their minds. Uh, uh, of course, they have the Hebrew scriptures. Did I say that? They've got the Hebrew scriptures. Forgive me. They've got the Hebrew scriptures. They've got, they've got Matthew's gospel, at least at this point. They've got a couple letters of Paul. And, and so they're relying on the Holy Spirit to help them pull things together and teach truth. And so Paul says in this, in this scenario, two or three of you do that. And the rest of you judge what is being said, discriminate, distinguish. As John, the Apostle John would later write, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many prophets have gone out into the world. They were not to listen to anything uncritically. Not as critics, again, mind you, but as as those who are engaged. Listen closely. And if one guy is struggling, if one prophet is struggling, and another has a correction, uh, then, then take over. And the first guy is to, to keep silent. So Paul said, I want all of you who have the gift to prophesy, but to do it one by one, that you may all learn and you may all be encouraged. And then he says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I want you to check each other. I want you to keep each other accountable and make sure you're speaking the truth. The goal here, as he said all along, the goal is edification. Because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. If there's confusion, if there's disorder in the church, it's not God who has put it there. It is proud and selfish people who have introduced disorder. So this this judging, this testing, this weighing of the word of prophecy sets up the next bit of instruction in verse 34. Then he says, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now, is Paul just being mean to women here by telling them to keep quiet in the assembly? 
Well, if he is being mean, then he's also being mean to everybody else because Paul has already told two other groups of people to keep silent in the very same passage. Uh, He said in verse 28, those who are speaking in tongues without an interpreter, he told them to be quiet. In verse 30, he tells the prophets to hush, only only two, maybe three. Uh, Everybody else be quiet. And then verse 34, he says the women should remain silent. He's told various groups of individuals who were disrupting the service to be silent already. The goal here is that the worship of the Corinthian church would reflect a God of peace and it would result in the edification of everyone present. This command comes within the context of the exercise of these spiritual gifts in the assembly of the saints. Now, there's a contrast here also. He says, uh, you be silent in the church, uh, but you ask questions and, and talk to your husband at home. See, women are not required to be silent at home. This, this instruction is for the church. So there are many, many contexts outside of the assembly, outside of the ecclesia, where women teach and, and where women lead. Well, you know, sons are commanded to listen to the voice of their mother. Um, this is a directive for what happens at church. And, and then in the surrounding context for what happens during specific times at church. It's, it seems to me, it seems very clear that women are not required to be silent when the whole church is speaking. So when the church prays together, she prays. When the church sings psalms together, she sings. She says amen. She confesses her faith. Look back to the Old Testament. Whenever you see these, these great covenant renewal uh, ceremonies in Joel, in Nehemiah, in Deuteronomy, all the people are there. And, and God calls even the nursing babes. I want everybody there. And everybody participates. Everybody responds in repentance. Everybody worships. Everybody praises. Everybody gives thanks. All the people say amen. So when the church is speaking, she doesn't remain silent. That's, that's not... That's not what Paul is teaching. Uh, and this, this also doesn't teach that church is just for men. I've seen this wrongly applied in, in various directions that, uh, that somehow this means, well, church is just for the guys, it's just for the men, and the women are just supposed to sit there and kind of keep the kids from aggravating dad while he's trying to listen to the sermon. And that's what church is just for guys. If women can't come, that's fine. You know, it's okay. Uh, it's for men. And, and that's what, you know, it's all about. That's not, that's not the teaching here at all. It's within this context of exercising spiritual gifts and interpreting tongues and the judging of the prophets in the assembly, women were not to enter into that dialogue. Okay, why? Why were they not uh, uh, permitted? First, in these times where the church is assembled, well, just a ground level prohibition. It's not permissible for women to lead the teaching or the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Paul covers this with Timothy uh, in in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as well. He echoes that over there. It's because uh, from the beginning, God placed Adam in the garden, in that sanctuary, to be a priest of that sanctuary and gave his wife to be his helper. So worship from the very beginning becomes a dialogue between the male voice and the female voice. All the Psalms are written that way. And that's why we read them and sing them the way that we do. When we chant the Psalms, we sing them as a call and response. That's the way they're composed. This is the truth. Oh yeah, let's reflect on that and and reflect it back and respond. That's what worship is. It's this dialogue between the bridegroom and the bride and God establishes that in the garden. And so the voice of the call is a male voice. 
the voice of the call comes from Adam, and he was to teach his wife what God had told him. She internalizes it, she reflects on it, and she speaks that word back to him. And so she says, if God says we shouldn't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then we probably shouldn't touch it either. That's, that's not legalism. That's lady wisdom. That's feminine wisdom. She's heard it, reflected on it, and has repeated it. And, and uh, that happens in the Psalms. That happens in the Proverbs. So uh, to man is given the duty of leadership and to woman is given the duty of faithful response. This portrays the dialogue. In worship, we have the dialogue between God and humanity. So in the Bible, priests who lead worship are always male. Now, are there prophetesses in the Bible? Absolutely. There are prophetesses in the Bible who teach in various contexts outside of the covenant assembly, outside of the, uh, outside of the covenant uh, worship. There are queens in the Bible who lead in various contexts outside the assembly. But there are no priestesses in the Bible. In biblical worship, there are never any priestesses. Biblical worship is always led with a male voice because the priest, the pastor, represents the voice of Jesus. He represents the voice of the bridegroom to the people, to the bride. The church is the bride, and if you have a bride... Speaking to the bride, well, that's just confusion. That's not in line with God's design. But there's more going on here than just teaching. In the synagogue, it wasn't uncommon for there to be a time of vigorous discussion after the reading and teaching of the word. You have this uh, example, where is it? That Jesus teaches, he, uh, someone brings him a scroll, he reads Isaiah, he says, oh yeah, that's talking about me, and then the place erupts in, uh, in debate, right? Um, th- there, was, there was this sense that in, in, the, um, in the synagogue that there would be a regular vigorous discussion and debate after the reading of the word. And it sounds like this carried over into the churches for the time, uh, for the time being, especially with the, the judging the prophets that Paul is talking about here. So in this context, it would be appropriate for a man to say, brother, um, I heard what you said, and I think you're on the right track, but I disagree with you on this point of emphasis. Or how about this? How if we say it this way? Would that be better? Can we, uh, can we think of another way to say this or another way to express this? Um, and here's why I think that. As you can imagine in Corinth, this church is ripped apart with all of these factions. So the discussion and the debate must have been pretty heated. What happens when women enter the fray, judging the prophets, making public criticisms, even if they have a valid point? What happens when men and women are debating things in a big group setting with no order and no decorum? What happens? Women get hurt. Women get trampled upon. Women get abused in that environment. It's not that women are less rational than men. I always, I always love to hear that. Oh, women are just so much less rational. They're, they're so much you know, more irrational than men. That's absolutely, have you, have you been to a football game? Have you seen the way men act at, at hockey games, right? Women are not less rational than men. Men can be pretty irrational, right? I know plenty of women who are smarter than their husbands and, and women who are more level-headed and clear-thinking than their husbands. But women do have, and we all can agree, this is, this is creation. Women do have a different emotional and relational profile 
than men. Men and women both have emotions, but women possess intuitions and sensitivities that men don't. Their emotions, women's emotions, are more complex, multidimensional. Inviting women to enter into the fray and make critiques of other men's prophecy neither honors women or respects men. Why is that? Well, men can wrangle and debate and, and, and uh, fight and then go drink a beer together afterwards. And it's okay. You know, little boys can punch each other in the head one minute and be playing just fine the next. You think, what's going on there? Well, it's just, it's just how we work, right? Men can make those separations that are much harder for women to make because her feelings go all the way down. For women, uh, everything is, is intensely personal in a way that it's not for men. It, it doesn't honor her to allow her to go toe-to-toe with men because it's more difficult for her to make those separations later. What's more, there's no good way for a man to respond publicly to correction uh, with, with a woman, especially with her husband right there. There was some conversation, I don't know if they're still talking about this, but in uh, public school athletics, I remember five or six years ago, there was a great debate over whether uh, wrestling should be a co-ed sport and whether boys and girls could just wrestle together, if that was appropriate and if that was good and if that was an okay thing to do. For the girls in that scenario, win or lose, girls, nothing really changes with their identity. I mean, you know, I, okay, I beat a boy or I lost, that's fine. But what about the boys? If, if he beats a girl, no big deal, man. You beat a girl. That's what you're supposed to do, right? You're stronger, right? If he loses to a girl, ha-ha, you lost to a girl. There's no good way. There is no good way for men to compete with women. She will always be dishonored. He will always be disrespected because we aren't equipped. We aren't built to fight each other or to compete against each other. We are built to complement each other. That is our design. And so Paul recognizes this design and he says, I don't want women entering into the debate. I don't want them speaking in this judging of the prophets. This whole affair would undermine the role and authority of a woman's primary head who is her husband, or if she's unmarried, it'd be her father. By her confronting and debating other men in the assembly, she's ignoring the fact that she's got a covenant head whose job it is to protect her doctrinally, to feed her spiritually. She doesn't have to defend herself. She doesn't have to stick up for herself. In public, Paul is saying, reading between the lines in public, let your man be your defender. Let him be the one who sticks up for you and your viewpoint. Do you you see that this directive protects women and respects women and it honors the differences between men and women? This is good order. So Paul says to women, if you have a complaint or if you have a question or if you have an argument, go over it with your husband at home. Now, this is extraordinary. This is revolutionary. This is, not, this is not a prohibition on participation for women. It's actually just the opposite. Paul was encouraging the women in their desire to grow and learn. He's urging them, don't stay quiet. Don't remain ignorant. Don't, don't uh, be a wallflower. Equip yourself for, for full participation in the body of Christ. Ask your husband, talk to him. Uh, This was a radical break with all the surrounding cultures. Women had little or no educational opportunities among the Greeks or the Romans and even the the Jews at this time really didn't emphasize or, or, or put a premium on educating women. 
Paul wanted the women to have an opportunity to learn. So he commanded them, you ask your husband for a teaching. He affirmed a woman's right to be educated. However, they were to ask these questions in an appropriate setting where she would be honored, where she would be protected. This also puts a weight of responsibility on the men. That if your wife is going to be asking you heavy theological questions at home, buddy, you better be prepared to answer those questions. You better be prepared to be the kind of husband who has answers to her questions. You've got to step up. So, so you see, this is not hateful, this is not misogynistic, this is understanding the differences between men and women, how they work, not flattening out the differences between men and women, understanding proper order, creation order in families and how good order in the church means recognizing this. Verse 36, he says, or did the word of God come originally from you or was it only uh, you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Uh, uh, you, you get the sense that Paul's maybe kind of, you know, done with the subject here, right? If, any, if anyone wants to keep arguing this point, let him, let him just be ignorant. I, I don't have any time for you. You, you have a right to be wrong. You, you can be wrong. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So he corrects them once again for making up their own rules and going their own way. The way that they're behaving doesn't look anything like any of the other faithful churches. And he reminds them that the words that he's writing are commandments from the Lord. He says, I'm not giving you my opinion. This is a mandate. You're doing it wrong. And if you don't conform to the widespread practice of the church, you're out of order. And you're going to cause yourself more trouble to the point that you're going to ruin the witness of the gospel in your community more than you already have. His parting shot before leaving the topic is this. Keep seeking to prophesy. He's not despising or forbidding spiritual gifts. He's not forbidding tongues. They're a gift. But whatever you do, let everything be done decently and in order. Chaotic, disorderly worship, the kind that they were used to having, really does nothing to edify anybody. As, as Paul said earlier, I really wish you wouldn't even get together. If when you get together, this is the way you're going to act. Be orderly. Be respectful. Reverent worship honors God. It loves your neighbor. It's inviting and welcoming to the unbeliever when they walk into an environment where men remain men and women remain women. Orderly worship in an orderly church cuts through the chaos and disorder of the world. And uh, it, it, it is such a, a counteraction to the idolatry of the world and the chaos and the insanity that is there. Order is attractive. Order communicates stability. I walk into the church and there's something older than me. There's something bigger than me that I can be, that I can be a part of. It's this order that Paul has been exhorting them towards since chapter 7. Uh, and now we're, in, we're at the end of that section now. Uh, chapter 15 comes next and he talks about resurrection. Uh, chapter 16 uh, talks about collections for the saints. He's done with this section now of instructing them on order, proper order in the church. He's undertaken this task to set the church in order because the church has been set in a position of authority over the world. All the Greeks, it's, it's amazing that uh, the, the church pulled the word ekklesia out of, out of the Greek society and culture, and that would be the name for the church. All the Greek cities had an ekklesia. All the Greek cities had uh, a general assembly. And now the church is the new ekklesia. The church is the new city council. The church is the new polis, the city of God. This is the kingdom whose head is the king 
of the cosmos. The church rests at the heart of all human society. All the world is to be ordered, structured according to heaven's architecture. And where does the world go to learn how things go in heaven? So as we pray, uh, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where does the world go to learn how heaven runs? You go to the church and the church has structure. The church has order. It's ordered according to heaven's architecture. And so in order to be effective, the church must be orderly. And the problem in our generation is that she's not orderly. She is not at all. And I say that not as her accuser, but because I love her. Because I love the church, I want to see her ordered. And the reason that the world is in chaos then is because the church is in chaos. Where does the world go to find, to find how heaven runs, how things are to be? Uh, the, the world desperately wants all the things we have. And they're so confused in the way they go about it. And they're so hateful and they're so spiteful in the way I understand. But what do they really want? They want harmony. They want peace. They want acceptance. They want forgiveness. They want to know everything's going to be okay. They want community. They want hope. They want utopia. What they want is the new Jerusalem without Jesus. Well, we point them to the fact that the only way to get to the new Jerusalem is by being submissive to Jesus. And we have the promise that when we are ordered and when our, mu- our, our message is intelligible, again, no whiteout, we don't make the Bible relevant to the society. We don't try to make the Bible relevant to the world. We, our job and our commission is to make the world relevant to Jesus, to conform the world to Jesus. We get that backwards all the time. But that when we're pleasing to God, the nations come to the church for wisdom. We saw it last week. I read from the prophets and and again, verse 24 and 25, that uh, if all prophesy an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, he's convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That is a promise that when the church is ordered rightly and pleasing to God, that the the, the world comes to her for wisdom. Wouldn't you love to see that in your day? Wouldn't you kind of love to see the start of that in your lifetime, in your generation? Widely, it happens on a small scale, but widely. Short of that, I would just love the church to believe that God is truly among us. I would love for the church to understand that, uh, that, that God is here in the church, that church is not irrelevant to my relationship with God that the church is not an afterthought. The church isn't uh, the place where my scraps and leftovers of my time and my resources and my talents go, but that the church is the center of life. It's put at the heart of the world because God is here. This is his sanctuary because we are his temple. What we do and say matters. So the ordering of the church is our project. That's why, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm reformed. That's why I'm part of this body, because I believe that the, the, the ordering of the church orders the world, and that the order of the church leads to order in our lives. And so we have to constantly fight the gravity of disorder, disorder in our checkbook, disorder in our calendar, disorder in our relationships between men and women, 
between parents and children, disorder between us and our coworkers. We, we have to constantly fight disorder and chaos in all of these, in all of these areas. So we must not be agents of chaos, right? Refuse to be disorderly. Refuse to be uh, uh, the, the, the person who's out of step, who's not submitting. All of, us, all of us have someone or something to submit to. Before we get to tell the world how to act, we have to order ourselves. Uh, and so let's, let's be orderly. Let's submit to those authorities God has put over us and see how God blesses that. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to bring us into good order by your Holy Spirit. Continue to conform us uh, by uh, your word into the image of your son. Uh, wash and cleanse your bride and continue to reform her and strengthen her and equip her with all that she needs uh, to, uh, to, to be salt and light to the world. Father, thank you for putting us in your church. Continue to cause us to flourish in our uh, roles and in our families. Father, uh, we submit ourselves to you for your blessing, for your mercy, for your correction. In Jesus' name, amen.